Happy Monday, everybody. How's it going? Hey, how are you doing? Good. What's up, Jeremiah? Matt? It's good to be here. Yeah. Have a good weekend? Yeah, it was good. I uh, chopped down a bunch of trees in my backyard and um, did a lot of uh, hard work. It's fun. Here in DC, the winter has literally today arrived. So like all those sweaters, I mean, my kids are in huge coats for the first time. It's, I'm not, that's that happy about it, but here we are. Same Uh, same thing in New York. Yeah. Like arrived this morning, essentially. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's fun. The, um, but the kids are always stoked. I think at the beginning of the year, cause they get to put on jackets that may or may not still fit them from the last season. And so you either look like the, uh, the kid in the Christmas story movie where he has like the big jacket where he like, uh, looks like a straight jacket or something. Um, or, yeah, uh, I, I, I almost wish we were in that situation. My son tried to get on the bus this morning in just shorts and a t-shirt insisting to me that it wasn't really going to be that cold at school. And I'm just like, how do I, like, this is a conversation I'm not prepared for. This wasn't in the instruction manual. Like mm. or convince a child to put a jacket on. I, you know, my my approach is I don't. I'm just like, fine, school's not that far. Go walk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then they come back like after 50 feet. Like, oh, it's cold. Yep, yep. I'll, yeah. I'll let you know how that goes. I'll try it tomorrow. I'll let you know. Yeah. I'll send you the bill for the therapy I cause in the future. Oh, yeah. Well, <laughs> disclaimer. People uh, who have kids, um, you're, you're on your own on this one. But my, uh, my, my approach is very much uh, just, I don't know. If there's a hot stove. Go, go touch it and find out for yourself. So I'm not going to stop you. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah, axe throwing, hammering, whatever, whatever it is. Like, I mean, they, they you've been to my cabin before. They, they it's like <laughs> the wild west out there. <laughs> Just they play with axes and stuff. It's so much fun. So anyway, um, cool. Well, on that note, the the conversation can only go downhill from here because we're going to talk about uh, boring tech and mm-hmm. uh, boring everything. And so uh, let's 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 kick it off, uh, Jeremiah. For people who don't know who you are, do you want to give a quick intro? Absolutely. Um, hey, everybody. I'm Jeremiah. I'm the CEO of a company called Prefect. We make uh, data flow automation software uh, and help people build uh, more robust data pipelines. Uh, my background, we were just chatting about how I've come a long way from, from sort of computational statistics as an academic and then a data scientist working with time series, a little stint with machine learning and computational neuroscience, and finally finally ended up here in my, my life's work as a, as a tool maker, as it were. Uh, seen a lot, a lot, a lot of boring, boring, boring tech along the way and fell in love with pretty much every piece of it that I've seen. Yeah, we, we all have this journey in common. That's what we were discussing before the show. Like uh, you've used the term reform data science. We use the term recovering data science, but basically discovering that tools are really important in trying to do our jobs and then turning into tool builders and tool architects. Or just yeah. tools. Or yeah, that's also possible. <laughs> That too. Um, yeah, yeah, Jeremiah. What's, what's like? Okay, so you mentioned that you've come across a lot of boring uh, tech in your life. What do, do you? Does, does anything come to mind as maybe the most boring piece of technology you've ever seen that was also useful? I mean, I think my go-to. I, I'm I'm such a database nerd, and my go-to is like Postgres or even SQLite as just this like workhorse, incredible, incredible piece of technology. I mean, the things that you can do in it are very exciting. But it's the sort of thing where once you've got it in place, you don't really think about it unless it's broken or unless you need to build something new on top of it. And so for me, that's where I go. That's that's always like at the base layer of a lot of things that I've built and I don't need to worry about it. Um, but boring tech shows up all over the place, right? I think throughout throughout the entire, throughout your entire technology stack, you'll find things that are just these workhorse. You don't worry about them. They're old, they're tried, they're true. Um, a moment ago, I was saying one of my... Um, uh, metaphors that I use is like the, the furnace in my house or like the, the hot water heater or like some, some basic piece of technology in my house that I don't really think that much about. Maybe it should, honestly, but I don't really think that much about unless it's broken. 
but nonetheless, it lets me live this really rich life that is incredible and lets me do other downstream interesting things. And so that's how I think like boring tech fits into the world. And, and that's why I also think it's really excited to get, excuse me, it's really, really easy to get excited about it. It's just, it enables things, even if it itself is not the, you know, the, the end product as it were. And I, I think in consulting, one of the most common mistakes we see early startup teams make is overcomplication of their technology stacks. And part of the reason for this is Silicon Valley culture that comes out of places like Google. And what people forget is that Google had to do a lot of this stuff because it didn't exist when they started in the late 90s. Now that it exists, it's like, just take really simple tools, take the hammers, take the saws and build really cool stuff on top of it instead of having to reinvent your Postgres's, your big data system. Well, except when you have to, right? Then that's the difference, right? When you yeah. have to, then, then you do it. Yep, exactly. Yeah. I was actually having a Slack conversation uh, this morning with somebody who was asking, okay, so I just, I'm about to start a new job. It's a greenfield, um, you know, uh, opportunity to, you know, kind of architect anything. And he's like, we're using you know, technology X, Y, and Z. And I, I need to know what other technologies to tack on. And I was like, yo, like, hold up. Um, and I gave, I gave the analogy of a, you know, of a, of a you know, kind of a general contractor, like a general contractor is not going to show up at a job mm -hmm. site and just start building a house, like without having a spec, without having an idea of what the house is supposed to look like, or you know, any of the other requirements, like that would be, uh, that would be insane. Right. I mean, especially if it's like your lot that you own and somebody just shows up and starts building a house. You're like, what are you doing? Um, yeah, what, what, what's the goal? What's the, what are we ending up with? Is, you know, we start there. And I think, first of all, it sounds like house is going to be our metaphor for the, for the conversation. So that's good. We're, we're all aligned on our, <laughs> on our technology metaphors. Um, I'll put up my hand and say, like, I am one of the most guilty people on the planet of being attracted to new shiny technologies. Mm. My, my team makes fun of me a lot for this, to, to oh. be honest. Any new database at all, I'm like, we got to use this. Let's rip out the whole database. Let's put this in. Like, I'm excited to see what this can do because there's always some promise, right? There's always some reason that someone saw fit to introduce something something new. It's it's faster. It's cheaper. It does, you know, I don't know it does whatever. It may have some new feature. There's always some reason for the new thing. And I think one of the hardest things to do is actually step back and say, okay, but on balance, is that thing sufficient to like overcome the wealth of comfort that we have with something that doesn't require us to like stay up at night worrying about it? And we've had, uh, I, I know I've had conversations with our team internally about like there are technologies that are, that are relatively new that seem like they would be perfect fits sometimes for what we're doing, but precisely because they're new, we can't bank on the fact that they will continue to perform in that way. And I think that's a real challenge, both, both as a vendor and as uh, a consumer of technology to overcome. You, you want that like beautiful middle ground of it's boring enough not to worry about it, but it's exciting enough to deliver real value. So I did. Yeah. I mean, if you take the house analogy, right, it'd be kind of like getting a furnace is based on like, like, you know, uh, high powered laser beams or something like that. And it's like, that sounds cool. It sounds really cool, but yes, yeah, I think I the one that. we have works really well, actually. So <laughs> the other one could actually torture house. Um, you know, or nuclear fusion for, or, you know, some nuclear there reactor. It's like, yeah, yeah. Exactly, yeah. Well, it's like, okay, cool. What, I risk? Tried it. <laughs> what risk are you taking on by starting with that? And, and imagine to extend your metaphor, what if the guy just shows up and he's like, okay, we have the furnace. Like now let's figure out where the basement goes, right? Mm -hmm. Or let's figure out where the rest of the house is going to go. It's like, no, we've done this completely backwards. Um, but we see that a lot. I mean, I mean, and again, put up my hand, like I'm, I've been guilty of doing this at times. Where I'm like, oh my God, this is so cool. Imagine what I could build on top of this. It's like, no, 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 no. What do I want to build? What do I need to build? How do I build that in a way that's <coughs> excuse me, easy to 
easy for my team to trust, easy for myself to maintain. I always think about myself in three months. Like, am I going to come back to this structure and understand what the hell I put in place here? And if I'm not, it's a, just an instant, instant non-starter. So being, being boring is beautiful. Being boring is the same as saying, I'm not going to have to worry about this. So, so what role does workflow automation play in this? Um, here, we kind of want you to show, or at least tell us why. We, we talk a lot about why, orchestration in our book, but why, why do you care about orchestration? Like, why well, is this I, I, think, I think genuinely I care about it because I hate it so much and have hated it so much in my career. Like, so we, <laughs> we this is the, I'm, this is my whole team is not shaking their heads. This is the worst pitch ever. We, we have this concept of negative engineering. And the idea is basically that there's all the stuff that you want to do, no matter what your role is, there's all the stuff you want to do, that you are paid to do, that you are uniquely expert in, that your company derives value from. And then there's all this other stuff that you have to do to make sure that it's actually going to work. Um, that is the world that orchestration and automation falls into. It is the job of an orchestrator like Prefect or an automation tool to help you with that, to help that not be the burden and the tax on your time and, and free you up to do other things. And so we lean into that. And it's important, I think, that we lean into that. We, 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 in the early days of the company, we had this um, mantra that if someone spent more than eight seconds in our web app, it was a failure. And I dare you to find another SaaS company that uh, has the same sort of product objective. But we were like, our job is to be the insurance product, the risk management product, the comfort blanket. If someone's spending a lot of time in an application, we've done something wrong. We've become a tool that they're doing things mm. with in a way that is not what we intended. This was in, in our early product. And so I think a consequence of this and one that I think lets us have an interesting conversation without me sitting here saying things like Prefects Amazing is it's given us a unique vantage point on the stacks and in particular the data engineering stacks that people are bringing into the world and what sort of, <coughs> excuse me, what sort of technologies they're, they're building on, what sort of technologies they're integrating together. And I think one of the most surprising things that we realized is in as much as we can sit here all day and talk about boring tech, and I think there's a, a belief that there is an emerging sort of canonical data engineering stack, we see the exact opposite. We see this sort of beautiful but heterogeneous um, mix of, um, yes, a lot of familiar logos, but they're being sort of combined and remixed in, in very interesting and interesting uh, intricate ways. And so our job takes on this new vibrancy, despite the fact that we are a boring piece of technology, that despite the fact that we are there to help everybody work together and sort of remove that negative engineering, we get to see this amazing diversity of outcomes and use cases, and then we get to derive value from it as boring tech, right? If you use a product like ours or, or anything that, that plugs that sort of negative engineering gap and frees you up to do something amazing, we participated in the value chain that led to that amazing thing. And that's an incredibly, incredibly exciting opportunity. And I think that's what all boring tech uh, in some sense aspires to. That's really cool. Yeah. I mean, it, it's, yeah, it's so useful. You don't notice it. Right. I think that's the utility. That's the goal. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, back to the house analogy to it, you know, it, it, you know, you don't want your furnace to be too exciting. Right. That would, that would be a very fascinating exactly. or, or your plumbing, right? Like my, my, my kid, I, I just had to show him how to use a plunger a bit ago. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a rite of it's passage. A, it's a moment <laughs> of excitement in an otherwise hopefully extremely, extremely boring. Right. But if, 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 if you, you know, if, if you're having to do that, like every five minutes or something like that, your, your plumbing's definitely exciting and um, uh, probably not in the best way possible. But tech is a lot like that, too. Like, I, I, I can see very few scenarios where you want to be, um, uh, you know, firefighting constantly. Right. And that tends to happen with a lot of, um, you know, kind of by definition, a lot of exciting 
stockings. So absolutely, absolutely, they're they're exciting because they represent in some way like unknown or untapped potential, which could be used for good or not. And I I don't want to again as, as someone who absolutely loves every single shiny new object on the planet. I think it's really fun to read about. I think it's really fun to sometimes like even test, even deploy. But at the end of the day, someone's going to take responsibility for the fact that it's exciting. And I think that all products take on a certain responsibility to make sure that they find that right balance of like, yes, we are exciting. We will deliver value, but uh, you, re you are not going to like be up all night worrying about us. And that's a, that can be a really hard place to live. Um, I, I know I know myself, I've sort of the pendulum has swung at different points in my own career. I can't wait to put in new things. And then I'm like, oh my God, I got to maintain all this stuff. I got to deal with it. I don't want to deal with it. Uh, I'm not sure where I am right now. I'm probably in transition. I also see orchestration as a big enabler of other boring techs. So in other words, we've gone from an era when you had to build your own Hadoop stack, you know, put in a thousand nodes, maintain a bunch of hard drives, swap out hardware as it fails to an era when I could just get this stuff off the shelf in the cloud without really thinking about the details. But I need something that makes sure that stuff happens at the right time and that my data can flow through and that I can stitch through all these relatively boring pieces that are kind of like data bricks, but I have to have some way of connecting them and making sure they do what they're supposed to do. And if you don't have those pieces, if you don't have the orchestration monitoring the operational parts, you run into a lot of problems as we know. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. And I think that one of the ways that we think about it therefore is, so yes, let's take sketching. Let's say we got to make something happen at 9 a.m. Great. That's not a hard problem. Although if you go into the world and try to schedule something at 9 a.m., good. good luck to you. You'll need to coordinate so many different like state and compute and your actual code. And it, it turns out that it's actually not as easy as you think it would be because there's very few businesses that have been built on the idea that you're just gonna schedule something. And I think there's a good reason for that, which is that once you do it, it becomes not just boring tech, but like commodity tech. It is, we send the signal, we send the command, we send, we hit the API, we, we, we batch a thousand RPCs uh, to borrow some flaming stuff that's going on on Twitter right now. And uh, that's it, we're done. We, we wait until 9 a.m. the next day. And the way that we think about that is that useful, but is that valuable? Is that really valuable? Do, do we add value to whatever context we're working with? And one of the ways that we think about it is, okay, what if it didn't happen? What if one of those services mm. was down? What if the network couldn't be reached? What if the, the scheduler itself didn't go? <clears throat> That's bad, straight up. But if we could tell you that it didn't happen, now we're in a world of value again. And so I think uh, the, the sort of 101 version of what an orchestrator does is it does things in the world. It, it, it actually coordinates activity in the world by making things happen. And I think like the 201 version of what an orchestrator does is it lets you create expectations about what will happen. And then it informs you when those expectations are violated. And that is where I, I think, and, and our, you know, our team thinks 90 plus percent of the actual value of dropping an orchestrator in happens. If you just need something to happen at 9 a.m., just chronic. Like, don't waste your time. You don't need more than that. But if making sure that it happens at 9 a.m. matters, now we're in a world of like very, very, very intense, uh, you know, we got to get it right. And that's where the value delivery can come from. And that's, that's you know, what we hope to earn as a, as a company, as a product. Yeah, you guys have used the analogy of uh, air traffic control, and I've used the analogy of like train signaling for the New York City sub subway system, right? Like yep. as long as everything 
you think you get on the train, it goes somewhere. You don't really think about these details, but someone has to make sure that trains don't collide and they have access to the right tracks and all these other details. That's that's what signaling does with some people in the mix. In this case, we want that to be as automated as possible to make sure the tasks don't collide, don't step on each other. The data flows, data gets from A to B, all these details. Yeah. Exactly. And I think this air traffic control idea is this, is this wonderful thing. I think there's a lot of people on this planet who probably think that air traffic control is the most exciting, phenomenal, fascinating thing. And there's a lot of people who think it's incredibly boring precisely because it's there, right? I don't think there's a person on the planet who hasn't been on a plane and known the role that air traffic control is playing in their journey. But you don't think about it. It's just, it's there, but it's this critically important, it's this crit critically important part of that process. And so we, we do love that as a, as a metaphor for like a very, very tight product metaphor uh, in terms of playing this very important, but invisible, but sometimes necessary role. So absolutely, absolutely. Kind of a funny side note, my, my grandpa, he, uh, he usually in, in World War II in Korea and fought like uh, a lot of uh, notable battles in, in both those wars. And then he then he uh, went to the Air Force and became an air traffic control person. Um, I actually have a picture of him landing uh, John F. Kennedy's plane, um, which is pretty cool. But, but he said that that job was actually more, um, probably more interesting than uh, getting shot at. <laughs> So, <laughs> well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> um, I mean, but, there's a lot. There's a lot more at stake in a lot of ways. So, um. well, I think I think it plays really nicely into this idea that we're that we're sort of circling around that the that boring tech is not at all boring. It's you know, or or maybe a different way to say it is like boring has this connotation that we don't actually mean because for someone who's involved in that point in the stack or in the process or whatever it is, it's actually incredibly exciting and inc incredibly rewarding to see what it can enable downstream. Um, this is something that I, I think about a lot when I'm uh, recruiting folks to come mm. to come work with us. And, and what I say to them is like, look, in all honesty, I don't, I don't expect that you're here. And frankly, almost nobody shows up at our company saying like, oh, I can't wait to schedule something. I would love to work on problems involving daylight savings time boundaries. That sounds exciting to me. My whole life has led to this moment. No, we probably twice, <laughs> three times, we found someone who actually, actually cares deeply about some specific thing like that. Um, more what I'm looking for is the opportunity to earn someone's belief that what we do is important and impactful. And in, instead, what I'm looking for is I'm looking for folks who are craftspeople. And this mm. is, I, I share this with every single person who, who interviews with our company, this idea, we're looking for craftspeople, we're looking for people who wake up in the morning. And I don't care if they work for us, they work for a company that is, you know, does the exact opposite of us. They work for the hottest like newest, not boringest company on the planet. They're still going to wake up and just want to solve a type of problem. And then the company's responsibility just becomes taking whatever it is that we do and putting it in that problem format so that that person can go be excellent and use their skill set. And I think that that's one of those places where, uh, Joe, like, like the story you just told, you can find great excitement even in the most boring places if it is something that you yourself love to do. Do you love building tools? Do you like seeing users who are happy when they use a tool? Because then great, you make the most boring thing ever that will maximize the chance of seeing happy users build on top of it. And if you can find that interplay, um, you really unlock a lot. So, mm -hmm. I, I mean, it, I, I love talking about boring tech more because I get to talk about why it's not boring than because I have to admit at some point in the conversation that it actually is. It's, it, it's just so much easier to get people excited about what you can do with boring tech than having them to pin to the one like marketed outcome of the very exciting tech. In a funny way. 
I love that you mentioned daylight savings boundaries because anyone who's spent time doing orchestration absolutely knows what you're talking about. We we have unit test after unit test after unit test of every weird combination. There's there's some oh, I'm gonna butcher this. There's some wonderful website which is like everything everything developers believe about uh, time zones or about daylight savings time, and it's this list of things that when you read it, you're like, this, this can't possibly all be true. It's like, you know, so not every time zone is an hour increment. That was one of the things that's most surprising mm -hmm. to me. Some places swap Arizona is very weird. Uh, I've recently learned, right? So like, there's no simple answer here. And it goes back to that original, if all you want is 9am, super easy. But if that has some hairy meaning to you and it might not happen, whatever, okay, we really need to focus intense resources on this problem. And it becomes very exciting. Doing so. Well, it becomes exciting. And it, it was interesting. I was uh, earlier this year, I was um, driving around uh, Lake Powell and the uh, Navajo Reservation. And um, what I found really interesting is the time zone changes a lot there. Um, it, it, I mean, depending on what, um, literally depending on where you're walking, uh, your clock will be different. And so that's wow. when uh, what, what seems like a very boring thing becomes very exciting. Because if, say, you have to be somewhere, um, which we did, we're like, I don't know what time we're in right now. I literally don't. And the thing is your phones aren't updating in time because the cell signal doesn't really work in some of these parts. So, so, um, so, so speaking, so I'm, I apologize, yeah, I interrupted that, but <laughs> speak, speaking of exactly that, I came down the other morning, speaking of like boring tech or rather exciting tech crossing the line becoming boring tech. I came down the other morning, obviously we just went through a time change and I got angry at my toaster oven because it was still showing the old time and everything else in my house is up to date. And and I realized, like, here's this is probably some feature that is so obvious that you would put it in for any like connected device, and probably wouldn't like no one would hold you wouldn't put it on like a marketing copy. Like, I don't think anywhere on Apple's site doesn't say, "And their phone changes its time automatically. You should buy it." Therefore, <laughs> but I came in like I got mad at my toaster. I was like, "Oh my god, I got to figure out where the clock button is hidden on this thing to to update it." And that was one of those moments where I experienced like this negative engineering idea in a different context, where someone took the time to put in this absolutely boring, probably took time to get approved feature in a lot of device, my coffee maker for who knows why, but delivered real value to me. So here we are. Are, are, your, uh, are your engineers lobbying for permanent daylight savings time? Or are they, they gonna like next congressional session they're gonna be there chatting with people and buying them drinks? Yes, they, I, I think they absolutely are. I think we get an enormous number of questions around daylight savings time because what actually can happen is like, forget that something goes wrong. If someone didn't realize that, you know, cause who thinks about this, right? It's exactly falls into this idea of like boring tech and not wanting to deal with this problem, right? If you want something to run at 9 a.m., a lot of people don't think about needing to attach a time zone to that because 9 a.m. is 9 a.m. I want it to run at 9 a.m. And so, you know, sensible default is to use UTC. So, or UTC offsets rather. So you, you put that in, it's 9 a.m. for you locally. And then you go through November or whatever it was, six or whatever day we change the clocks. And all of a sudden your stuff is running at, I can't remember if it's 8 a.m. or 10 a.m., but like yeah, one of those, <laughs> certainly. And a more intelligent person than myself would, would remember, fall back which way that actually was, right? But um, all of a sudden your stuff's running at the wrong time and uh, you are in a world of pain and in a completely unexpected way and probably in an unobservable way. And so it doesn't matter if we solved all the bugs with crossing that boundary. We still need to bring users to a place where they can um, identify that that's going to be a problem and uh, make sure that they're expressing their expectation in the right way. Interesting. So, now, oh, oh, go on. 
Oh, no, I was going to say, now I'm going to be thinking about which way the clock should actually go. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll, you'll, you'll be awake at 2 a.m. Like, wait, which... <laughs> Why did I... I'm so and sad. it's going to happen that way, too, because you always wake up thinking about just the, the weirdest stuff. Like, 2 a.m. Exactly. I do, I do, like, yeah. Exactly. Um, what's what's the... What, yeah, for me, I woke up this morning. I think it was 2, and I was like, I wonder what the workout of the day is in CrossFit.com. So I had to... <laughs> nerd <laughs> i i get a lot of these like wake up in the middle of the night so i'm like oh my god i i you know i i said something to someone that isn't exactly true you know i give mm. someone advice that isn't exactly right i should have caveated this way i should have and i'll and i'll be in like a cold sweat about it because oh that's funny well it shows you care so freaks me out yeah well or i don't want to be wrong there's always a selfish interpretation of every action interesting interesting not in this case not in this case but they're you know yeah, yeah. That, that actually opens up an interesting thread, like, uh, you know, kind of the intersection of um, boring. Um, and I, I guess maybe not necessarily looking uh, being right or wrong, but I guess there's a tendency to maybe want to look clever in this industry as well. Um, okay, so I'll give you an example, right? As in software engineering, um, you know, if you're doing web development. So Ruby on Rails or Django is pretty dang awesome. Batteries included, everything works. Um, but a lot of devs feel like, okay, well, it's a monolith and therefore I can't use it, right? I have to do microservices out of the gate or something like that. What, maybe, you know, maybe or maybe not it's necessary, but I think the tendency is to maybe over-index on, on doing complicated things. What, do you have an idea of why that might be or if, if I'm actually totally off base and everyone doesn't actually think that way? I, so this is one of those places where I think that sort of culture and organization can really intersect with like actual code that's being written. So a lot of folks will be in environments, I think, where um, needing to stand out for some reason, like needing to not be boring is actually very, very, very important to being noticed or getting ahead or, or something like that. And so I think like, even if we set aside, there are many selfish reasons that one might want to do this. There are many just interest reasons, right? I love this new technology. I want to do this. I think this will be cool. I don't care about the tech that whatever it is. There's a lot of reasons people will do that. But I think in a lot of situations, people are incentivized to do it because it's one of these things where um, if you come into the room and say, here is a list of ways that we can, um, here's a list of ways that we can sort of impact this business outcome. And then you come in, someone else comes in and says, here's a list of ways we can do it. And this one other good thing that this technology will enable, it's very hard now to say no to that because it is stack ranked sort of as a Pareto efficient kind of advance on the state of the world. And so I think this is one of the reasons that um, product and engineering are so important to intertwine because I think products, uh, products job in a lot of ways to say no to things, right? Constructively with good reason. And setting up that tension is super, super, super important to do in a constructive way because otherwise we're gonna run for every little tiny possible improvement in our stack. And what is the thing that grounds us to boring tech? What is the thing that actually gives us um, an honest way to say no, I don't want to take on this risk, even though it gives me this marginal improvement and quantify what that risk could be. So I think it, I think it has a lot to do with how organizations are structured and the incentives uh, that they put in. Um, Chris White, who's Prefect CTO and one of the greatest engineers that I've uh, ever had the opportunity to work with, uh, has put a line in our handbook about being easy to trust, um, mm -hmm. writing code that's easy to trust. And I think that's a really wonderful like version of what it means to write elegant or effective code. Uh, one that we we do our best to aspire to, and I think that 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 really sums it up. Whereas one could also say, write code that works, write code that's fast, write code that is, you know, makes an impact. There's a lot of different write code that, you know, a lot of different ways to end that sentence. 
uh, and uh, right code that's easy to trust is leaning into the very positive side of what can make things boring. That's really cool. It reminds me a lot of Bill Inman's, uh, I asked him his true north and he said, uh, um, believable data. Two words. I, I like, Super boring. I like that. Yeah. I like but, that. Mm -hmm. As a, as a, as a data scientist, a, ref, uh, a recovering data scientist yes, who has course. spent many, Thank many, you. yeah, exactly. Uh, who has spent many, 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 uh, too many hours defending why a model looks different than someone expects it only to find that I made the mistake. Uh, believable data has a lot of really important roles throughout the entire mm -hmm. process, in, in my opinion. I actually love that. I have not heard that phrase before, but I absolutely love it. I was like, wow, that's, that's easy to trust. Found. But yeah, and the same with a code that's easy to trust, right? Or trustworthy code or however you describe it. Like that's, yeah. it's fundamentally the essence of a lot of stuff. And, and it's one of these things where, you know, we, we um, there's a quote from Warren Buffett we put in our book that, you know, it's, um, you know, trust is one of these things that's easy to earn and, and um, you know, it's hard to earn and easy to, to make disappear or something like that. And That's right. It happens and, a lot. And as a matter of fact, that was a line from your book, which resonated very, very, very strongly with some members of my team who I canvassed cool. to find out, you know, are we, have we looked at this? And this, this was one of the lines that really resonated. And I, I, I suspect okay. it's because it echoes what's in, our, what's in our handbook. And so it's a very easy sort of cultural alignment to find. Um, there's one other reason I think that we've seen, especially lately, this uh, influx of, let's call it misguided uh, shiny objects, misguided innovation, which is something that we were chatting about before, before we went live. Um, the, the venture situation, let's say, of the last two years, the mm -hmm. idea that basically you put your hand up, you can raise millions and millions of dollars to build something has meant that we have a lot of companies in the world that are actually just features of other products. Yep. They're not products. They're not, they don't have a place in there. They're just features. And I think in a world where money is, is free and interest rates are low, um, you can get away with that. And what this means is that there's this constant, this, this whole example that I just gave of things that are bad, where you have a lot of things that work, and you, have other, you have the same exact list of things that work and one more thing. That math starts to work really nicely when, you can, when it's easier to hire people than to build good software, right? When it's easier to just put up your hand and get money than actually like make, a, make a good business case. And so I think for the last two years, we've actually seen not just uh, cultural organizational incentives that lead to this, but I think we've seen an investing environment incentive to do anything that looks like it could create value in the future. It was so, so, so cheap to raise money and to provide money. Um, and I, I mean, I, I, I don't want to, I learned recently that uh, the phrase or the, the term Jeremiah actually means a very depressing story. It comes from like the biblical prophet of Jeremiah. who's a very depressing person. You all can go look him up. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 I've seen this. So there's, so there's a noun, which is a Jeremiah, which I guess I'm excited that it's the only noun version of my uh, name. And it basically means when you say really, really depressing things. So here's my Jeremiah, which is going to be massive consolidation in our industry um, over the next year or two uh, as a lot of companies that, that aren't real like products, but the capital P, right? Businesses are going to discover that you probably can't actually build a billion or even a hundred million or even a $10 million business on top of these marginal improvements. Those should have mm -hmm. been done as feature teams, not startups. And I think that that's going to be a very painful process for us to, to go through a very painful consolidation process. But I, I think the one silver lining in it is that we'll be left with a lot of really important technology uh, and uh, a lot of solid uh, data stacks. Yeah, it's interesting to watch. It appears we're going to have a downturn of some sort very soon. And I think this is also a really great opportunity for innovation, right? 
but it's going to be innovation that's very focused. Uh, Joe, you like to use the term shiny object syndrome, which is just like chasing stuff that looks really cool. And we've been in an era of shiny object syndrome in the investing space, which is like throw AI to, at it, throw some buzzwords at me. I'm going to invest in you. Yeah, Web3, block, yeah, yeah everything. Web4. Web <laughs> we ran into I, a Web4 company. Well, we, I think we saw a Web5 company or something. Yeah. It was bananas. Probably, it's so probably. shiny. It was blinding, right? It was just, it was too much noise. I mean, and I had thought of doing a product startup or, you know, a company, but I, I was like, there's too much, there's too much noise right now. This is absolutely the worst time to be raising money and trying to do a, a company, even though it counterintuitively seems like the best. Um, in fact, right now I, I've been thinking about maybe now is the time to start looking at stuff because it's like, everybody's going to get cleared out real quick. So, yeah. you know, or taking yeah, out, like, I guess, like, you know, with, with kids, <laughs> sick kids or I something, mean, but uh, the, the blockchain is a fantastic example of not boring technology. Not right. at all boring. There's nothing about it that's boring. I mean, you, we're, we're using it as a, as a database. Why don't you just use a database? Well, because it's a blockchain. It's like a very circular reason. But it is the shiny object syndrome of chasing it because it's new, not because necessarily it delivers like this holistic um, product innovation. And I, do, I, I'm, I have mixed feelings on whether or not downturns actually lead to innovation or if it's a survivorship bias. Situation where like companies that are being started right now are necessarily leaner than companies coming into right now, which are short on cash, finding it difficult to raise without, you know, terrible things. And, you know, I think a lot of people like say, well, Airbnb was started in what, 2008. And I'm sure this, this whole like host of similar company lift, I think. What, was it because they were started then or was it because the capital environment forced them to evolve real business plans yeah. and not just sort of, throw a bunch of stuff out and say, oh, we think this is useful to people and we'll see what works. And so that's my, I don't know, maybe maybe contrarian, maybe Jeremiah. Oh, I don't think it's contrarian take. at all. I think it's just a lot of it's common sense, right? And, and the thing is, it's always kind of a mix of everything, right? Like you got to get real lucky. Um, it, it certainly helps if you can run a real business versus, you know, some kind of, uh, you know, funded entity, I would call it. I wouldn't call it a business necessarily, but it's just got money and you happen to have a company and at least a registered company and you might make money, you might not that's not the same as running a business, right? Like I, I think, um, you know, and Matt and I were sitting here, you know, we run a consulting business. That's the most boring business you could think of. And, and we're just sitting there like, geez, like how is it that all these other companies are like valued, um, you know, more than we are, even though we're probably making more revenues than they are. Right. It's, but how, how, why is that the case? It's just bizarre. So. I mean, shiny objects exist for VCs too, right? Yeah. If you can, if, if you can dream it, and you see that, and it's very different. I, I, I had a consulting business for, for a couple of years, about 10 years ago, and uh, I loved it. Loved every minute of it. Loved the lifestyle it, it enabled me. Uh, loved the clients that it let me work with. I loved, I loved most, more than anything, I loved the diversity of problems it let me uh, have, have a window into. I was building like super, super, super early. I mean, this was the wild west of, of like machine learning. It wasn't even called machine learning at the time. We called it, I don't even remember what we were referring to it as, but um, I got to work with like, uh, these 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 sort of instrumented farms that were that were for the first time collecting like moisture levels by a sensor, but they needed to know like how what's the difference between a puddle and a flood uh, and a broken pipe. Like how do you actually measure that? How do you how do you pull this out of the data? And uh, you know, in the next breath, I'd be working with like some some company that needed you know their refrigerators were breaking. And how do we know when the temperature has dropped to a level? And such as someone left the door open for thirty seconds. And uh, I, I just love getting to see so many different windows in. And then under the under the hood, it was kind of always the same data problem, mm -hmm. uh, like some version of anomaly detection. I think that's been a thread through my career is like risk risk management of one sort of mm -hmm. another. But I love that. I love getting to see stuff like that. Um, it's a uh, it's great. 
Yeah, it is great. And I think it's interesting. I, I'm curious to see what sort of the, uh, the new crops of companies that, that pop up, you know, during this, um, you know, uh, I guess downturn, downturn, whatever we'll call it, I guess just the new, the new reality. Um, and as you say, consolidation is going to happen. What do, you, what do you think consolidation looks like? I've heard a few things. I'd love your opinion on that. Well, <clears throat> I think um, I think the nature of what's led to the excess means that consolidation, just to be blunt, means a lot more bankruptcies than than acquisitions, um, because there's a lot of companies that are entire companies around what I would argue are features or feature improvements, and consequently, it's a very 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 expensive way to buy a feature. Um, whereas you might you might build it or you might even take take uh, this team and build it. And so um, I, I do expect significant consolidation in terms of the number of names, but I don't think the mechanism for that is necessarily going to be uh, M&A, just because again, when when there are so many, I think the, the biggest determinant of whether a company comes through this period okay or not is whether they have restructured their operating model from mm -hmm. a period of, of zero interest rates to a period of significantly higher interest rates and, and sort of a high cost of capital as a, as a consequence. So if you can do that, then your business will will uh, flourish. In, in fact, you'll, you'll be more literally more profitable than, than ever before. Um, uh, whether or not you are literally profitable as a startup where you are in your sort of maturity. Um, but if you cannot do that, then it's very hard to understand the argument that a company would acquire you to right. take on your problematic business model as their own, uh, rather than just wait or build that feature themselves. And so I think this is, we're really going to see the shakeout of like, is the product delivering sufficient value? to power an actual business, capital B, um, or not. And so um, it would shock me. I think this is a, I think this is probably, there's never been a better time uh, in my opinion. This is actually, I'm, this is my opinion, but I'm quoting it directly from a VC that I'm close with just to show how pervasive this opinion has become. It's probably never been a better time to be a consultant operating in the data stack for this reason, which is that um, all of a sudden, everyone has gone from having some degree undeniably of shiny object syndrome into help me. I just need to make sure that this actually works. And I've made some choices that I need to live with and I have an outcome that I need to deliver and I need to make sure that this, that this works. So I think, I think, um, I think you're going to have front row seat as a matter of fact. And, and people need to cut costs. That's many of these companies, it, whether a startup or not, are burning through a lot of money in cloud environments and they absolutely need data, maybe more than they needed it five years ago because of the downturn, they have to figure out how their customers are changing, how they can make money in new ways. And if they don't have data, they're going to be completely blind to that. I, I agree with you. And I think at the end of the day, the number one thing that is always true is if you can deliver value, yep. generally speaking, people will not mind paying you for it. And I think over and over, we, I remember in the very early days of building our company, that was actually the motto we had for our sales team, which I, again, I dare you to find another sales team that says this, but it was deliver value first. It's like our open source deals, right? deliver value first, no one will mind paying you after. Um, and I think that that, that idea of you, like you can build a business on that. You can build a real business on it as long mm -hmm. as you're careful, as long as you don't get it, you know, too far over your skis um, of, of any kind, of any funding structure, of any scope, of any sale. Like that is, the, that is at the end of the day, the only thing that actually matters. And mm -hmm. when, I, when I've spoken with folks who are considering starting businesses, whether now or in the past, there, there's always this hesitation, right? To, to take the leap, to actually go do it. And they, they want to prove it out. And they want to they write it down on paper. And they want to ask 10 friends. They want to do this. And you know, at the end of the day, businesses have a funny way of validating them, themselves. Mm -hmm. uh, they either produce value or they do not. And uh, I think if you can split the business into the boring part and the exciting piece, there's always an exciting piece, right? I think that's sort of 
a huge part of what we're talking about today. We could say things are boring, but they're not universally boring. Postgres is a very boring piece of technology. And yet uh, I am never, never more excited than when there's some puzzle where the query planner is choosing like a bad, a bad path. And like, we have to go figure out what that is. That is the ultimate puzzle for me personally. That is my happy place. Um, there are exciting moments in all pieces of boring tech. And I think businesses need to find the same like balance. There's some things that you just need to do that you have to do that you need to get out. And then there's this moment where you can add value and enable something for your customers. And I think figuring out what that is is critical to the health of the business. And strangely, that's how businesses used to operate before we were flooded with, uh, you know, doing carpet bomb by uh, endless amounts of uh, money. Uh, you had to do these weird things like make money and like uh, hopefully profits at a minimum, like be cash flow positive and be able to, you know, survive. It's, it's a weird thing. I, I know. And hopefully these uh, lost arts are rediscovered soon. I joke. Um, Matt and I call these dark matter companies in a lot of cases, right? You drive down the interstate and you see all these companies, you know, and it's like, you know, maybe it's a, you know, a bowling alley or they, you know, they make sporting equipment or something like that. Companies that aren't, they're not flash. You'll never hear about them and they're very profitable making a lot of money. Right. And these are, yeah. Well, he hearing that you quoted uh, Warren Buffett in your book, I think says everything we need to know about your your view on like what makes a healthy business and 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 how to how to think about a healthy business. But I, I completely agree with you, uh, and I hope that you're right. And um, and I'm sure. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm curious, but I'm but I'm but I'm sure that that you have seen in the work that you're doing and in what your um, your clients are trying to achieve. I'm sure that you've seen every variety of this. I'm I'm guessing that you've gotten request to use specific technologies, which you may not be the ones that you would volunteer for exactly this reason. But I'm, you know, is that a, is that something that you have to navigate sometimes? Is that you have to help people uh, come to that realization? All, all the time. I mean, frankly, as consultants, just that piece of advice, like you spend five minutes with a client, you look at their architecture diagram and say, this is way too complicated. Let's make it simpler. That, that can be worth like actually a hundred hours of consulting just to have that conversation. And we see it over and over again. I, I can I can absolutely imagine, and it, and it comes back to this idea of like just remove this complexity. This is not where you want to spend your time and energy. Mm -hmm. it's probably, you know, I, I would imagine that there are other folks who would say actually that's that's the shortcut, right? That's where that's where you can make a ton of money by leading people to build these crazy, crazy contraptions. Well, but then we're in a place of like be easy to trust. Like that's not going to survive. That's not going to get the engagement in a month. We, when we started ternary too, like you know, uh, the thing that Matt and I decided upon, you know, the the, the um, I don't know if it's a metric, but a true north that we centered upon was um, building reputational capital, right? So even if we had to lose money um, in the short term um, by building, uh, you know, a good pile of reputation over time, that's worth more than um, than almost anything because you you can make Completely. money once you have a great reputation. If you have, but taking shortcuts and making money quickly leads to bad reputation. In this industry, especially, it's small enough where if you um, destroy your reputation, it's really hard to earn that back, you know, and, and memories are long. Yeah. Same, 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 same with trust. It just in reputation as well. Exactly. Um, what, one of the things that I really do love about our industry is the opportunities to intersect with open source. Um, and mm, yep. I, I'm actually, I'm not a person who automatically thinks open source is good. I think you have to earn the right in a sense for open source to be a, mm. a positive driver of business. I actually think that in, in a vacuum, open source is a net negative for a business, as, as weird as that sounds, just because you can create these uh, very, very, very toxic relationships there very quickly where the where the burden of work is misplaced if, if like the incentive structure isn't correct. You have this like thankless maintainer stereotype and all this 
mm-hmm. all this other stuff that comes with it. Um, but it is an opportunity to build relationships and community in a unique form that if done healthily can actually translate into the business itself. I remember the, in the very early days, we signed a contract, must've been our second or third customer. Uh, and they wanted a specific, uh, it's not important for us, it was a specific legal sort of requirement in place. And we we're like, we're more than happy to do that, but we've never done that before. Uh, you'll have to give us, probably it'll take us like three months or so to get it drafted and everything. And they go, that's fine. We trust you guys. We'll sign the contract today. And that sort of just showed the the art of the possible, which is cool. if we build trust, we, 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 we commercially benefit in, in a very tangible way. And this was something that was, I think, really important for our early team to see how the trust, the relationships, the genuineness of it, if you will, translated into actual outcomes that drove our business. And that, that is still, this is what, four years later, that's still a great customer of ours and, and a great awesome. relationship of ours. So I, I couldn't, I could not agree with you uh, more emphatically. Trust and relationships and boring tech. Well, the, the thing with boring too is it, it lends itself really well to trust because it's easy to explain. My, my, my alarm bells start going off when somebody tries to explain something to me and I don't understand it within the first 30 seconds. Either I'm like really stupid or you don't understand what you're talking about or you're trying to confuse me on purpose. It's one of those usually. Uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, yeah. I, I'm fine with number one or two, but number three, I, I see this too often uh, where um, either, you know, you're happy explaining it, but the thing is normally it's so complicated. It's not meant to be understood actually. Well, I, th- I think that that's one of the great exercises of stripping that away. And I'm a person who, like, I I love to follow every thread. I love to ramble. Uh, ramble. I love to, you know, probably confuse issues more than I need to really dive in. And so uh, I I am I am sensitive to feedback I've gotten about being more more. And that's why you stay up at two in the morning and thinking about things. You're like, oh, did you just stay here? <laughs> Dear God, Time I said something Time wrong. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so, but 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 I think you're right. I mean, it, in in some way, if it is that valuable. Well, I, I don't know. It's a, it's a complicated thing, right? If it's that valuable, on the one hand, it's probably easy to explain. On the other hand, because it's easy to explain, you need this second explanation of why it's unsolved. And I think that's where we get tripped up a lot, right? So like, uh, there's some structural reason. I think all startups uh, have to confront this in some way, right? If you are going out and you're going to build this company and it's a startup, and like necessarily you're doing something different, you need a damn good reason why it's not just different, but better and why is no one else doing it? And, th- and that could just be because, because the status quo is too powerful or there's too much inertia. I mean, it, it doesn't have to be a complicated reason for it. But I do think when I hear people who are like, we're going to do this and it's obvious because of this, I always want that, that like, why? Why are you uniquely positioned mm-hmm. to solve this in a way that no one else is? Or why do you have this insight that no one else does? Because if it's really that simple and it's unsolved, I don't get it. The world is not full of dumb people. So what is it? What's the, what am I missing about what leads to this sort of structural nature of this problem? At least that's, a, that's sort of part of my framework when I'm, when I'm evaluating a startup. Like, what is the problem? Why is it structural? Why are you uniquely positioned to, to solve it? And I actually don't care as much about the solution. I'm much more interested in what the problem is to be solved. Solutions evolve over time. I think one of the worst things people do is they, they expect startups to be able to precisely say what the exact solution will be at the moment of inception, at the moment of like least knowledge. Uh, this, is, this is how um, a, lot of, a lot of startups with like, what I'll call poor VC partners get get screwed is the VC says, great, so this is your this is what you're putting in the world. These are the metrics you're gonna hit.
go do it. And it's like, you just agreed to this contract at literally, literally the moment of, of least information. Uh, and I think this is one of the reasons that uh, VC-backed startups could be far more successful if early stage VCs had more respect for the learning process that almost every startup needs to go through. But that takes a lot of diligence and time and energy. Here's a question related to that. How do you think the new funding environment is going to shift the relationship between VCs and startup founders slash people raising funds? Is this going to have a net negative impact because it will give maybe the VCs a bit too much power? Or, or do you think the VCs will rethink some of these relationships? I think, I think it depends in all honesty on, on, who, on, on which side you want to take to answer if it's a negative impact or not. Um, so from the point of view of um, many founders, I would imagine it's a net negative because all of a sudden you have these terrible things like oversight and partners and, 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 and things that are actually not unhealthy in a sort of corporate governance um, structure. I think, I think you're going to bring things way more into uh, balance uh, in a lot of cases, or you'll, you'll have just more opportunities to sort of genuinely constructively work together. Um, as, as, as a team. Um, I like to say that the founder of a company is literally the only person who didn't have to interview, right? It's probably the least hireable person is actually the most sane explanation for why this person is here. And I think that whenever we um, get into situations where we automatically give deference to this person, like that's very problematic. Um, and uh, in an environment like we just had, where VCs were so desperate for deals to get done that they would sort of do this with no diligence, with no oversight, with no whatever, you can get into bad situations unless you genuinely find a way to form that partnership. Um, so I can argue it from that point of view. I can also say like, look, I, I come from the investing world, right? I also don't think that having VCs involved in companies is automatically good either. Like that, that there's no way that's true because then then they would have a lot more successes, frankly. It wouldn't just be the huge ones that drove their returns. It would be, oh, every company we get involved in is a huge winner. Why? Well, because when we join a board, it leads to good outcomes. And then if you actually look at right. the math, which I have, because I've been curious about this question, um, most VCs, when they join a board of a company, the company does worse. Why is that? Because they overpaid to get on the board. It's not actually because their advice or anything. It's just, it's just an outcome of what it takes to invest in a company. So I, my take is like, neither of these actors are actually the ones who we should look to to dictate like the outcome yeah. here i think i think the worst thing is when you have what we just had where the founder or the ceo is like freewheeling and doesn't really understand what they're doing and the vc doesn't really care and then what actually happens is the burden of delivering the successful company falls exclusively and entirely to the broader team which is in that moment by definition lacking um, guidance and, and direction. And so I think creating this like actual genuine partnership is one of the things that companies should strive for. But this is my like, you're touching on like my soapbox right now. So like, I, this is stuff I could like go off on for a long time and I want to be mindful of our time. Oh, we got 10 minutes left. So yeah, uh, this is interesting. <laughs> so let me know. <laughs> and in fact, I did, you know, I did an interview with uh, Matt Turk um, several months ago, uh, kind of before everything started going south and we were talking about the, um, you know, it was sort of at that inflection point, right, where there was like about to be a downturn, a sharp drop off. Rates were sort of going up, but not really. And so I asked him, you know, what are the what are the scenarios here? And, and, and he brought up exactly that point where he felt like, you know, as a VC, the um, the chance to get to know founders and really develop a relationship with them just was non-existent because you're competing against every other VC to get a term sheet in front of the, the founder. Like you do not have time to chit chat. Uh, you know, develop reports, like you get the deal done now in the next like 10 seconds, or you don't get it done, period. Uh, but what he said, he missed the good old days, it sounded like where, you know, you could actually talk to people, you know, over a period of years, develop a, 
you know, a, you know, a relationship. It's a very boring thing that, um, you know, you get to know somebody and what they're about and their goals and, and hopes and dreams. They get to know you too. But importantly, as a founder, it's also important that you you want to know your VC and what they're about too. I think it's equally important. I, I've seen so many startups. Um, I, I would say have very subpar or bad outcomes because they they got they got attached to the wrong VC. It happens. It, it can so. it can absolutely happen. Um, Matt and Matt is Matt's phenomenal. I've been fortunate enough to get to know him for a long time. He runs the his Twitter is a great follow by the way if we're going to plug something let's let's plug yeah it's great great twitter um great memes great great meetup too uh yeah data driven is phenomenal there was something i i couldn't remember i think when i was still living in new york there was i think it was a forerunner to data driven that i used to go to and it was the most fun because it was like me and 500 other data scientists and it was one of the one of those rare this was in the early early days like new york tech was just kind of coming up the curve and i mean this would have been like 2000 10 probably and and i remember going to these meetups and just just the opportunity to just meet these people and see what they were working on. i just loved it and that's i mean frankly i just went and started my consulting business right after that as a matter of fact so i have this very fond memory of this uh environment that he helped create in new york that's tech good. yeah matt housley you, you you're living out there right now uh part-time i'm i'm here a bit every month so yeah the meetup on tuesday was fantastic uh, when the youtube video comes out i highly recommend watching it so oh excellent yeah excellent cockroach db and uh, adp really interesting talks in both cases so but yeah it's awesome and I, i'm glad to see the startup scene kind of coming back now uh, it sounds like it kind of died during covid which absolutely makes sense but i mean the meetup seems... scene or the startups uh, sorry the meetup the meetup <laughs> scene <laughs> but, yeah, yeah meetup yeah. scene yeah now it's kind of coming back so yeah, we've, we've been seeing a little bit of research. Here's something I'll plug because it has nothing to do with our company, but we, we have this program where we just, we love meetups. And so we'll, we'll give pizza and drinks to any meetup that's open source focused that needs it. You don't have to mention us. You don't have to tell anybody where you got it from. But I, I, I wish more people took advantage of this just because yeah. I, as someone who would host meetups and especially when I, when I moved to DC and like tried to be part of like, like that, like what was at the time, very nascent sort of data community meetup scene. That was the hard, hardest thing. Where's the money going to come from for, for pizza? Like it's easy to get people together. And it's frankly, it's surprisingly easy to get great speakers, but then there's, there's this one missing element always. Uh, and so I, I just want to plug that for, that's the only thing I want to plug actually is this that's really cool. pizza patrol and pizza any, patrol. any company, any meetup that's open source focused. Don't mention us. You don't have to tell anybody, just take advantage of us. I'm telling you right now. Um, it's important. And it's one of the ways that we want to see, uh, community come back a little bit because we know that's one of the hardest things and there's a lot of a lot of folks taking advantage of it but not enough yeah i mean beer is a good social lubricant but pizza is also a great social lubricant people start eating they start talking to each other they relax exactly i think that's the key i think when you get these i mean i just distinctly remember now that we're on the topic how amazing it was when I was early in my career, especially, but but now too, but like early in my career, especially going to these things, getting to learn what people were working on, getting to hear what technologies they were like, that's, that was such an amazing environment. And as someone who has very much been uh, in my house for all of COVID, uh, I, I personally desperately miss that. And I hope that, I hope that a lot of people sort of uh, recapture the lost time. That's really as cool. As possible. Where, where are you based out of? I live in DC. I live in DC. Yeah. What's a, what's the meetup scene like there right now? Well, it's coming back as well. Um, it, I was actually surprised when I when I moved here. I think what what's cool about DC uh, from from our perspective is uh, there aren't as many sort of like you know tentpole 
you know, there's not a huge startup scene here, although Amazon is supposed to be, you know, arriving very soon and we'll see what, what that does. But what there was is there's this enormous data community, uh, biostatisticians from NIH and, uh, you know, engineers from, I don't know, Lockheed. And, and so there's this enormous community of data adjacent people in the area, even if there isn't this sort of like startup drumbeat to, to bring them all together in maybe a more natural way. And so the meetups are enormous and such a variety of applications and uh, approaches to learn about. And so I love that. When I first got here, I was actually shocked because my wife grew up here. That's why I'm here. I don't have really a connection to the city. And I didn't frankly know what I was getting into. I didn't know what was here. So I was delighted to find such a community. And now I'm very, very, very interested in helping it uh, come back. That's really cool. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if we're going to see a post-COVID shift. I mean, frankly, the Bay Area has coming, come roaring back. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, people working remote have spread all over the country. And so I wonder if we'll see more startups happening outside Northern California, basically all over the country. It's, it's an interesting possibility. And uh, it, it's really, I will be interested to see startup activity during potential downturn that we're seeing now. Well, the meetup activity, I feel like that yeah. was... Um, uh, I mean, I've been running meetups. She's uh, for a long time. I'll leave it that way, like almost a decade. Uh, I started with a Rails group back, way back in the day, then a Python, then a data engineering meetup, and a few others as well. But, but the thing I noticed, and you know, we're trying to resurrect these in, in Utah right now as well. And I would say, pound for pound, we get a lot of people showing up. Like I think we had, um, uh, we get a lot of people. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> so. Um, but it, it's a weird one. I think it's time to, it, it's a good opportunity to kind of rethink the, the format of a meetup as well. I, I really feel like people now go for networking and, um, you know, to mingle with people versus the presentations even. And so I've been more telling, uh, you know, potential sponsors of meetups, look, why don't you just sponsor a happy hour or a lunch or something like that? Like an event where people can go do stuff. Maybe they can talk, maybe they do lightning talks. Maybe they don't. I think people at this point just kind of want to reconnect, um, totally. you know, and that's, that's a community. <clears throat> I think one of, one of our uh, guiding principles, so Prefect has always been a, a hybrid company. We've had uh, remote folks and, and in-person folks, and now we're, we're fully remote. And so one of our rules now is we've sort of reemerged our own um, IRL presence and brought our team together in different ways. One of our rules is whenever we're together, we cannot do something that we could have done virtually. And it's a great constraint. That's cool. And so, yeah, so, so that leads to all kinds of different, like if you're, if you're going to sit people down in a room and show them slides, you better have a damn good reason for why you yep. didn't just do this. You know, this could have been a, a Zoom basically. Um, but with that constraint, it's like, okay, so we're only going to reserve that for, converse, for, for situations where there's a conversational opportunity, where we're actually going to bring people in in a way that, you know, boxes on a screen isn't as conducive to, you know, obviously everyone's been in the situation where like, oh, sorry, is my mic on? Oh, this is awkward. Oh, sorry, right. let me talk over you. You go ahead. Oh, the cue says it's like, no, we need a real conversation sometimes to get to the bottom of things. And so that's been a really, really cool constraint. And um, I actually hadn't thought about taking it beyond because the company, we know so much about like how we work like asynchronously and how we choose to work when we're in person. Um, I never really thought about it in the context of meetup, but like, I'd be really curious if we threw that in and we're like, okay, but this can't be something that could be replicated. I, I, I want to be, be really- That'd be cool. Yeah, okay. I want to be really careful when I say that because at the, in the very same breath, at least internally, we have a rule that we are not going to disadvantage anyone who is remote, mm. who is or dialed into that event, right? So like, there's a very, it's, it's hard. I'm not going to say it's easy. It's hard. And we have a phenomenal internal team that is dedicated to making sure this works, but there's a way to do it where you get the engagement and you capture something about the in-personness and then you don't disadvantage folks who are right. um, cool. by choice or otherwise remote. 
So I think it can be done in the meetup context. Yeah, I think it can be done. And actually, coming up on time here, speaking of meetups, um, Utah Data Engineering Meetup is this Wednesday, and we have uh, Jumak Degani uh, speaking about uh, the hard parts of data mesh. Um, so it's virtual. Uh, I think to, to, to your point, Jeremiah, um, we felt like you know the, the, those types of presentations, Q&As, especially with the speaker who is remote, we'll just keep those remote for now. But for local communities, it's like bring back the local element to... Um, you know, to, um, to things, get people out, do stuff, you know, and, but it's, it's tricky because in Salt Lake, I, I want to take people on hikes, but all the hikes here are like you climbing up mountains. It's not like, <laughs> and, and it's getting to be winter, which it's not, it's it is not winter. Like, it's yeah, like, yeah, I mean... we have a high of 30 today or something. It's amazing. Oh, it's actually um, colder. Okay. Yeah. Like I'm nuts enough. I ride my bike around still, but, uh, yeah, it's cold here. Um, but, uh, yeah, this has been, it's been a fun chat. Um, uh, for people who want to learn more about you or, or prefect, how, how can they do that? Sure. Prefects at prefect.io. And uh, easy way to find me is on Twitter, Twitter slash Jay Lowen. Uh, but it's mostly horrible, horrible puns and dad jokes. And don't expect to learn too, too much, except for the occasional SQL problem that I can't figure out myself. Didn't you say that you're a, uh, people say you're right of the guy from Parks and Rec? Uh... <laughs> my team, my team <laughs> likes to say I'm, I'm like Chris Traeger in terms of I, nothing seems to get me down. But yeah, <laughs> That's amazing. I'm, I'm an eternally positive person, I think. That's awesome. That's been a really fun chat. So absolutely, so, so nice to spend time with both of you. Thank you for yeah. I like what we'll have back on sometime again. I think it's a good conversation. So uh, there's a lot more layers we haven't talked about. So yeah, we can go let us know. Let us know if you're in Salt Lake or New York City, and I happen to be here at the same time and love to connect. And one of these days we'll get out to DC. So you got yeah. it. Well, anytime you're here, me and the extended data community will welcome you. Uh, with Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks, Jeremiah. Yeah, and, uh, next week's Monday morning data chat, we have uh, Sanjeev Mohan. Um, he is um, really awesome. Uh, I'm not gonna uh, I'm not gonna say much more until the uh, event's posted, but you're gonna learn a lot from these guys. So, and then it's Thanksgiving. I think uh, Matt and I are maybe doing a show kind of on our own. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. So, uh, we haven't done a duo in, lately, but. Um, Thanksgiving special, basically. Thanksgiving special, yeah. Uh, yeah, Matt will dress <laughs> up in a uh, pilgrim outfit. Um, all turkey. <laughs> turkey. <laughs> turkey. Yeah, it'll be um, it'll be awesome. So, cool. Well, thanks to the audience. Great, great questions. Um, so we didn't actually get to any of the audience questions. Very sorry about that. But we're having such a, <laughs> such a blast here that, uh, you know, it is what it is. So, awesome. Well, um, we'll see you all next week. So, have a good one. Right, thank you.